Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to On The Market, everyone. Today, we have certified deal junkie James Daner joining us to talk about a super important topic that is on most people's mind right now, which is what does a good deal even look like in 2022? But before we jump into that super interesting topic, James and I are going to be talking about some confusing and often contradictory data coming from the housing market right now. everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm Dave Meyer, real estate investor and VP of data and analytics at Bigger Pockets. And joining me today from Seattle, we have James Daynard. James, how are you? I'm doing well, man. Just uh, try to keep up with this market right now. Yeah, it is a little confusing and we are definitely going to get into that today. But before we do, I'm sure everyone who's been listening to this podcast for the last couple of weeks knows who you are. But if we have any newcomers with us today, could you just give us a quick uh, explanation of your experience as a real estate investor? Yeah, of course. I, like, like you said, I'm a certified deal junkie. I've uh, been an active investor now for and I can't even believe it, like almost 20 years. I started when I was 23 years old as a wholesaler knocking doors uh, in Seattle, Washington. We, we only buy in the Pacific Northwest, King Snohomish, Pierce County. Uh, and we've gone from wholesaling, uh, we used to wholesale five to 10 deals a month, and now we're, we're, we're buying about five to 10 deals a month. And we're a very active flipping company developer up in, in Washington. Uh, we usually flip about 100 homes a year, build about 30 to 40, and then uh, we lend money up there. And then we're very active uh, buy and hold apartment syndicators where we're, we're, we're doing a lot of value add construction on the multifamily side. 
Yeah, he's, James is a super experienced investor, and you should see his face when we talk about deal analysis. He just lights up. He gets so excited about it. So we are lucky to have him on the show today to talk about how to underwrite deals right now in 2022. But before, James, we're going to jump into some of our headlines. And as you said, we have some really confusing headlines. So I want to play a new game. I made it up. It's just called Market Forces. And I'm going to read you two market forces that seem to be opposites, but are existing at the same time right now. And I'd love to hear your opinion on which one is more important or which one's going to win out. Like there seems to be these like tug of war between opposing market forces. And I'd love to hear your opinion. I would love to hear what these questions are. That is the truth. Everything's being contradictory right now. Yeah. One thing says this, the other says this, and it, it, it makes it very confusing. It absolutely does. Okay. So let's start first with Demand versus supply. This is classic economic question. And for anyone who hasn't been paying attention to this, demand has been dropping off. And you see that mostly reflected in uh, the, the data I like to look at is the Mortgage Banker Association survey. I'm not sure if you follow this, mm -hmm. James, but they actually just came out yesterday and said that mortgage demand reached a, I think it was like a a 22 month or since 2019, it hasn't been this low. So we're seeing demand really fall off. Um, but at the same time, so demand is low. We are also seeing supply remain pretty constrained. And as of this recording in early June, we still only have housing market data, really reliable data from back in April. But at that point, active listings were also down 10%. So we're seeing lower demand and lower supply. So it's unclear in that kind of condition where prices are going to go. So which one do you see winning out? Lower demand or lower supply in the battle for housing prices right now? Uh, I, I mean, w demand is always key in anything that, that is moving in the market, whether it's housing or, you know, if demand is at a whole time high or low, the, the transactions just don't move in general. I believe demand is more important than inventory because inventory can change with seasons. It can change with what people are actually doing right now. I think there's a lot of things as we go into a different type of economy and we possibly could be going into recession. Those are things that are still forecast down the road. So that I, I do believe that the inventory is going to adjust up as demand starts to fall. Um, you know, cost of money is it gives people that reason to really slow down and think about things now. Where, you know, if if it's really cheap, you always make that impulse buy or whatever it is, right? Like if, if something really pops up on, on Amazon, I'm going to be like, oh, and it's that impulse click buy. I do it a lot quicker. But if it costs more and I have to think about it, it just causes everything to slow down. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that especially with inventory, demand it's not just like inventory is not a reflection purely of supply, like long-term supply. Inventory is a reflection of both, you know, new listings, how many new listings are coming on the market and how many people want to actually buy that. So as de demand declines, and I did misspeak, it's a 22-year low for mortgage demand, not a 22-month uh, low that the mortgage bankers just announced. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty big difference. Um, and uh, that could mean inventory is on the rise. That brings me to my second question, which is a little bit confusing to me. So Redfin came out with some data that on June 2nd, so it's pretty recent here, that shows that as of June 2nd, 
the number of listings that had price drop had doubled since February. So back in February, it was about 2.5% of listings were seeing price drops. Now it's at 5%, which historically, let's be honest, is still not super high, but doubling is pretty significant. But at the same time, 57% of properties are still selling for above list price, and the average list to price ratio is or is still 103%. So we're still seeing most things go over asking, but at the same time, we're seeing price drops, super confusing market dynamics. What do you make of this? And which one do you think is going to be more important over the next, or the rest of 2022, let's say? Well, the first thing, I think the data is just a little bit behind right now. And part of that data that's been recorded actually was on a lower interest rate, you know, because that's the, the rates were about four and a half to eight, four and three quarters when that data started recording. And when we started seeing the transition with a lot of our fix and flip, because we, we get a very good basis of what's going on in our market. We're in affordable markets, we're in expensive markets. And as we saw the transition, we would still we were still getting a lot of movement because in theory, I think the buyers in that market were so beat up and they were so trained mentally that if anything popped up on market, it was going over list. Because, you know, we'd have brokers, we, we would list a property and we'd have a review period and we would miss our review period in the minute of that transition. And we would still have brokers call us saying, how many offers do you have? And we were like two or three days out past a review period. So that means we have no offers. And the next phone call would be from a broker going, how many offers do you have on the table? Do, we, do you have a pre-inspection? Do we need to waive? Do you take escalators? And we're going, wait, but but we missed our review period. And and so I think it's just buyers in the market were getting trained. So it started recording more. What I've seen recently in the last week or so is I have seen a lot of price drops. And I've been seeing that. And so I do think that that 103% data point is going to change next month when it all records out. And the pending sales, they are selling. The properties are selling. They're selling quickly. But we've seen a couple things. Either people are pricing about 5 to 10% lower off peak right out the gate because they kind of have FOMO right now. They just want to make sure their house gets sold. Or I'm seeing these 7 to 10-day price drops, which doesn't, in my opinion, as a real estate broker, doesn't make any sense. If you price your home and you run your analytics and you come up with your comparable value, you need to feel good about that number. And if they're not selling in the first seven to 10 days, brokers and sellers are getting a little bit of panic and they're cutting price pretty aggressively because they're just not used to these market conditions. They're used to seeing 40, 50 people come through their house in a weekend. And now we have four to five and, and they're getting concerned and it's, it's causing a little bit of market irrationality and it's causing the whole market to kind of cut because everyone's starting to chase each other, which is going to affect these data points. Uh, but I do think price drops are going to be as people try to figure out where the magic sweet spot for affordability in the market is, we're going to see it a little bit irrational, which is going to throw all these data points off. And that's why it's really important for any listener is look at the data and hear the information out of it, but take a step back and always look at the big picture. Like if I hear inventory doubles, I'm not that concerned because that means we went from two weeks to four weeks and four weeks is still four months lower than the normal amount of inventory in the market. So don't get caught up on these crazy little you know headlines because the headlines can freak you out but then you really have to take a step back and go okay what does that really mean well that's why we brought you here for our between the headlines pet, uh segment every week james thank you that's super helpful one question before we move on is can you help 
ground us you know you're saying that a seven to ten days price drop is crazy back in 2014 2015 whenever there was a more balanced market what would you expect for as a, as a broker for the amount of time for a home to sell or how long would you wait before dropping price we always factored in at least 45 to 60 days on the sell Back in 2000, I would say from two, 2009 to 12, we would actually factor in 90 days. And then from 12 to 16, we were really factoring about 30. We, we got our craft pretty dialed in at that time to where we were coming out as the nicest product in the market. So we would factor about 30 to 45 days, uh, maybe 60 in a slower market. But that's a normal amount of time. I think over the life of history or the history of real estate, the average market time is like four and a half to five months. And that's normal, right? And it really should be, right? Buying a home is a huge decision for somebody. This could be a house that they live in for the rest of their life or raise their kids. And people started rushing so much because they had more FOMO rather than looking at what their long-term goals were. You know, they had the FOMO of, I'm going to miss out on the cheapest money that's ever been out there in the world. I'm going to never have a house because there's no inventory for sale. And then they came off the pandemic and they were going stir crazy. So they wanted their own place to have to be more settled. And so this mindset has really caused the market in the rules of the market to change. And you have to be patient. And so when we go out on a price, no matter what, unless I get zero showings or one showings, I'm not making a price adjustment. I have to run a very in-depth CMA on the property, go through the comparables, feel good about my price, market out that price, and then judge inventory. But I'm not going to cut price for at least three to four weeks unless I dramatically overprice out the gate. Okay, thank you. That's super helpful because I think when you see people you know, this increase in price drops, it's not necessarily because they've been sitting on the market. Days on market is still 15 days right now. You know, it's still incredibly low, some of the lowest that we've ever seen. So as James said, you see these headlines, it's tempting to get, you know, sucked into a, to this and be fearful, but do your due diligence, understand what the data is actually saying before you any, make any decisions about this. Before we go into our due diligence part of the show, I do want to just ask you, it seems, you know, in the last couple of shows and today, you're, you're, would it be fair to say that you are a little bit bearish in the short term about the housing market right now? I think everyone should be bearish on all investments, to, to be perfectly honest. I think, you know, the amount of money that got pumped into our market and the amount of assets that got inflated is just concerning. And it didn't inflate just gradually it hockey sticked up everywhere and so anytime there's a hockey stick i'm a little bit more bearish but at the same time when i think the market is bearish and people are getting a little bit of caution and there's some there's definitely investor fatigue out there right now people have had this wild 24 months and people are starting to pull back that is also when i'm trying to buy the most because there's always this over dip in correction where what, you know, the, the, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. Everyone wants to sit on the sideline. Well, if everyone's on the sideline, that allows me to run the run on the field pretty freely. And yes, we're being bearish in our underwriting, but we are still being aggressive on our purchasing. I think we did. I mean, we've closed like five or $6 million in real estate in the last 45 days. So we're still actively buying. We're just buying under a new, a new mindset. Well, that is a perfect segue to our due diligence topic for today, which is what is a good deal in 2022? Very excited to hear what you have to say about this, James. We'll be right back after this. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, James, let's get into your favorite topic. Let's talk about deal analysis and what deals you're doing right now. I'd like to break this down because I think for different strategies, deals obviously look differently. What a, you know, what's a good buy and hold versus what's a good flip or a good wholesale or maybe even a syndication or passive deal. So let's just start with buy and hold investing. What, you know, are you doing buy and hold investments right now? And what are some of the key metrics that you're looking at or rates of return that you're targeting in your deals given this, you know, confusing market we were just talking about? Yeah, I'm I'm definitely still looking up at purchasing property and keeping them in the long. I mean, we just closed um, a nine unit in Renton, Washington. I just closed a triplex in Issaquah, Washington. Um, and for me, I'm aggressively looking for rentals right now because I do believe that rent uh, is going to still go up. I know it had a huge jump the last 12 to 24 months, but it's with the, the cost of housing, uh, I think rents are naturally going to get get pulled up. And, and for me, I always like to know, know where's the upside, where's the opportunity. So buying real estate right now, even with rates high, is a great idea for people. It's a heads against inflation. It gives, it gives you a place to park your money so you're not losing money on your dollar right now. And when we're looking at these rental properties, though, because we have that big inflation factor, we are looking for, for me personally, I won't buy any deal unless the cash flow is higher than the inflation rate by two points. Okay. So if, if I... If I think the inflation, like for me, I don't believe the national reported inflation rate. I think it's right now around 8% based on what I'm paying for things. And um, and so I'm targeting everything at least at 10 to 11% on my cash on cash return. If I don't have that, I don't want to be cash flowing less than what the, the, uh, the dollar could be going down at. Um, because I just don't think you're not getting ahead of the market. And for me, as a, you know, I've, I've been doing this now almost 20 years, so I feel like I'm getting old, but I still have a lot of runway, I think. And I want to stay ahead of the market and keep growing rapidly because I'm not at that kind of, you know, I would say stabilization phase of this investor where I can passively just kind of invest and live off that. I'm still trying to grow. And so for me, it's really important to be ahead of the, the inflation rate. Uh, I'm also looking at uh, how, what kind of finance am I having? Um, if commercial banks right now are being pretty aggressive, and so we are still able to get very good lending out of our local banks and their cheaper rates. And so right now, as we're looking at properties too, we're going towards those five to 10 unit buildings because the bigger players aren't really aggressively looking at those. And the small mom and pops investors, 
they're kind of getting locked up a little bit and they're afraid because they, they're just looking at, they're, they're so used to this mindset of, hey, this property's for sale for this price and it's going to sell because the market's so hot, so I'm just going to sit off the sidelines. Whereas what we're doing is we're looking at what's not selling and we're going to aggressively go after that with the right metrics in play. And that and because there's no demand, we're able to actually obtain get these properties under contract right now at numbers that we haven't been able to do for the last 24 months. So we're going... We're making sure that we are above the inflation rate and we're going where our banks are being loosest with the money that gives us the best financial performance. You know, if, we've, if we're going, those assets that we can get the cheapest money on with the lowest demand is going to be the best possible deal. There's so much to unpack there. So let's start with the inflation rate. How did you come up with the 2% above the rate of inflation as your metric? Is that because you expect inflation to go up another 2% or is that just sort of like a bare minimum you're looking for because you want you need some real cash on cash return? I'm a cash on cash return junkie. That's that is my main metric. It, a lot of people don't use it as heavily as I do, but that's I mean for me as a, a simple investor is I have this much capital. How much is it going to make me every year? And I just like keeping things simple on that route. That's done really well for me over the last 15 to 16 years. Uh, but yes, I want to be ahead of the inflation. I want to be making that cash on cash return. Also, I think at some point we could see a hockey stick in inflation too with all the supply chain issues. This, I mean, we're, we could have food shortages. There's some other impacts that we're reading in the market that could make it jump again. And I always, again, I don't want to, underestimate the jump. Um, and so it, if I core believe that, then I need to plan accordingly for that and, and really put it inside my metrics. So it gives me a little bit of padding on the, on the 2%. In addition to, I just want to make sure I'm beating inflation. I don't want inflation pushing me around. As long as I can out, out, if I can outsmart inflation and out return it, then we're, I'm okay. Yeah. So, but I think th there's probably, I'm thinking, you know, one, if you're finding 10% cash on cash return deals, give me one. And I'm curious how you're finding those. But two, like, is that what is that a good return? Would that have been a good return for you in a less inflationary environment? Or is this an adaptation that you've made based on what you're seeing in the market? So I, I have, I constantly every quarter that I was even Every six months or so, I really look at what I'm doing with my holdings. And I, the, the most important thing any investor can do, including myself, because it helps keep me focused, is narrowing my buy box. What is my expected returns in certain areas? So in, in areas that were more B to C rated, I was always going for 10 to 12 because I think it comes with more of a hassle. It requires more management. There's more expenses. And so I always want that extra padding in there. And better neighborhoods... For example, I, you know, I purchased this triplex in Issaquah, Washington, or I, I have one in uh, Queen Anne, Washington, I, I, I recently purchased as well. They're really good neighborhoods. So I dropped my cash on cash return down to like 6% because I had such a high appreciation factor in there and I was buying in the neighborhoods that were moving the most. And these are also neighborhoods that aren't going to have as much movement on the drop either. This is where people want to live. And, but... That right now, if I'm buying that same deal that I bought five months ago at a 6% return, I'm going to be, in my opinion, I'm losing money because the inflation's beating it out at that point. And so I've adjusted even in the good neighborhoods. Now I'm at more 10% on the good neighborhoods. And in my B to C rated neighborhoods, I'm actually dealing with more 15%. And the reason that's even higher for me is because in those neighborhoods, I've had more wear and tear on my properties in, in general. Mm-hmm. 
and construction costs are also a lot higher. So my maintenance repair costs have jumped up quite a bit as well. So I factored in the extra return there also to offset costs that I have to keep up with in the inflation. That's fascinating because I have typically taken a similar approach where if you're in a good neighborhood where there's a good prospect of appreciation willing to take less cash on cash return because your maintenance is probably going to be less. You probably might have less turnover between tenants and there's costs associated with that. But does that mean that you're, are you able to find deals in good neighborhoods with a 10% cash on cash return now? Or are you focusing more on different neighborhoods that have higher cash on cash return, but maybe less desirable to live? No, we're definitely seeing the transition over right now i would say the buy and hold hasn't quite quite got there but we're seeing on the fix and flip for sure but again it comes down to that perception of what the market is so everybody is getting they're pulling back a little bit it's like they're getting all the bad media they're they're paying more at the pump they're paying more at their uh at their grocery store and everyone's seen the signs and I think a lot of people that were investing in the last five, 10 years also went through 2008, whether they were growing up and they had a bad experience at their own household, or they were an investor or a homeowner that it maybe didn't go so well. And there's that, that whiplash in the market. And so as people are pulling back, we are definitely seeing more opportunity because the thing is construction's gotten way more difficult. Things are harder. It's harder to find guys. Things cost more and it's became a pain point for a lot of investors. So value add has already had this pain point where people are like, I don't really want to deal with this. It's giving me that floating target. The construction's hard. It's just such a headache for me. I don't want to do it. So that was already in the market. Now the money makes all list prices look bad too. Like when you really put the numbers on most stuff that's listed, it does not make sense at all. But as those days on market start to accumulate, that's where sellers start really flexing. And we have contracted some fairly good buys recently. I mean, we just got one in Everett, Washington for $50,000 a door. We haven't been able to buy at that price range. It was a nine unit. It needs a lot of work. But stabilized, it's going to be a 9.9 .9 cap. Uh, their cash on cash return is going to be over 20. And we're, those things usually trade about 150 to 175 a door. We're at 50. That was that was stuff that we would get back in 2012 to 14. Heavy fixers, didn't people want to do with it? Higher rates back then, so people didn't really want to mess with it. But we were able to get that deal now. And it really comes down to, again, just cost of construction, the processes behind it, and then a little bit of fear in the back of the mind where people now are not pulling the trigger. So was that sitting on the market? Is that what you attribute? The, is that why you got the deal for such a good price? Well, that one was actually an investor bought that one six months ago, couldn't figure it out. And then now they are like, I just want to get rid of this because it, it they're in the planning process. And, and because they're nervous, they were willing just to kind of cash the deal out and call it good. And they're, all, they're taking a little bit of a haircut too. It's just, you know, and that's the thing when people get nervous, I think for the last 24 months, people thought they've or not thought they've, they've obtained a lot of wealth through equity and they, in their brains, they feel like they're way wealthier than they actually are. Equity is only good when you realize it. And then what happens is as it, people are seeing their bank accounts go up with this equity and they're feeling better and better, they're spending money, they, they have real wealth. And once it starts coming down, people start really freaking out and they want to capture that wealth right now. They don't want to go back to not having as much money again. And, and so it kind of makes people be a little bit irrational, but I, I would say 
we've been able to do this in the last two weeks. Like it's really on these current oh, transactions. Wow. That recent. Oh, it's very recent. Are you getting deals on the market too? Like that that nine plex uh, was an investor deal, but are you finding things on the MLS too where people are selling for under that list price? Because you just said that with the list price on a lot of these doesn't make sense. So how are you making them make sense? We are actually getting more on market deals done than off market because really, yeah. Cause here's what's going on right now is these wholesalers for the last 24 months, they've been, I mean, they've been getting paid. They have a good times, good times for wholesalers. They have been crushing it. And every investor's like wholesaler that it's like you're courting them every time. Like, <laughs> how do I get in bed with you? So you bring me that deal first. What, what do I need to do? And I mean, that's what we do a lot in Seattle. We help wholesalers because we just want them to bring us the deal first because we don't want to miss out now. So these wholesalers have also been trained that if they get anything under contract, they can sell it to anybody. And, but what's happening now is they're turning around to these investors and there's nobody taking it because the margins aren't there anymore. And a lot of wholesalers are also newer to the market. So they haven't been through any kind of life cycle of real estate. And so they don't understand that people buy differently at the time. And so the wholesale deals are actually still pretty heavy. And, and also these sellers have been getting harassed for 24 months. So they haven't, and the, the, the transition is so recent, they haven't really caught on either. We have been getting more calls from off-market sellers re-engaging. Those leads are up probably four times of what they used to be. Wow. Um, you, you know, we use a room called Call Magic. They, they, they call out, they, they do mass amounts of contacts. We used to get about five to six leads a day out of, or, or, I would say every two days. We're up to like 15 leads in those two days. So people are definitely calling more, but they're getting a gauge really on what it is. The on market's beautiful because a seller gets it listed. They see how many people are coming through, right? They get the reports. They get to see what's happening in real estate today. They know that homes were selling in five days, 90 days ago and selling way over list. And then they roll their house out on market and nobody wants it and no one's even looking at it. They get real very quickly. And I like doing transactions with people that are real on their numbers. And so we're able to use a lot more logic on the market based on days on market, showings, inspections, and data points. And we actually get a better margin on market than we do off market right now. A substantially better market, margin, to be honest. That's fascinating. I mean, you're, you are ahead of the data right now. Like, we, like as you were saying, we, you know, most real estate data comes a month, six weeks in arrears. So you're, you know, we're, we're sitting here in the beginning of June, we're looking at a full last full month of data in April. But what you're saying is just in the last two weeks, things are already starting to shift. So this is super um, valuable for our listeners. So thank you for sharing all this with us. So you basically said cash on cash return in terms of a buy and hold is your main metric. Do you ever factor in appreciation into a buy and hold deal? And if you do normally, are you doing it right now? Uh, so we all, any property I buy, and I've always trained myself this way, I look at it on a 10-year basis. So in our rental performa, because we want to see like how well does this deal do over 10 years? You know, what if it's commercial, what's your principal buy down? What's your accumulated cash flow over the 10 years? And then we always put in two standard metrics, but we don't use the high ones. Appreciation, we, for, the, for the last 30 to 40 years, real estate has appreciated, I think, an average of like 3.5%. It's been crazy the last two. And so that's what we put into our appreciation box. It's, we use the, national, the average over the last 20 to 30 years. So we factor in a, three, a 2 to 3% appreciation over 10 years. I don't think I'm going to get that over the next two, but... 
I will get it over the time. So I just use a normal metrics. Same with rent increases. I think rents will pop even higher over the next 12 months, but we do a standard 3% rent. You know, it depends on what your market is. We kind of just put in 3%, 5% is kind of standard right now. Um, so it, we perform that over a 10 year basis, a 3% rent increase on the growth as well. So do we just use standard. We, we won't factor in short term. Got it. Okay. So one rule of thumb in the buy and hold world that a lot of people are familiar with is the 1% rule, which if you're not familiar or the rent to price ratio, basically it says if you divide your monthly rent by the purchase price of a property, it should equal 1%. So as an example, you buy a place for hundred grand, the monthly rent should be at least a thousand dollars a month. The theory is that this is a good proxy for cash flow. If, if you are going to, if you hit that 1% rule, you're going to have a good uh, cash flow. I've actually done some data analysis into this and it, there's truth to that. There's about a 0.85 correlation between the rent to price ratio and your cash flow. So that's pretty good, pretty strong relationship. I have written extensively about the 1% rule and my own opinions about that, but I don't know if you know my opinion about it. So I'm going to ask you first, do you think the 1% rule is a good rule of thumb or represents a good rule, a good, um, you know, metric that people should be using in today's day and age when they're looking for buy and hold deals? Um, I think it's uh, on a general rule. I think it could be usable. Like, and I think your numbers at like around 85, that's about dead on because, you know, your cost of mortgage on that's going to be about, you know, let's say that's going to be about 0.65% of that roughly in there. And then your other expenses is going to get you around the 85%. It's, I think it's a safe way to look at things on a broad basis to help you get through that first step of underwriting. Would I ever buy a deal based on that? Absolutely not. Because each market is so, there's so many variances in each market, depending on where, you know, you're investing or I'm investing, it can have a lot of variance in it. But as a quick rule of thumb, I do think it, it works fairly it's like my first set of scrubbing. Does this work real quick? Okay, let's take it to the next phase. Mm -hmm. Because also as an investor, your time management is such a, you know, I'm a huge deal junkie. I am looking at 40, 50 deals a week minimum. That's crazy. <laughs> that's oh, awesome though. That's why I was emailing you so late last night. I was just crooked. <laughs> and there's so many more to look at right now too. So I'm like trying, it's like kid in a candy store. But um, it's, you know, I, it's a good first way to do it. And I think as a general, it has enough padding in there and it also doesn't have too much padding to where you're going to get frozen up every time. So it's, it's a reasonable rule to use. All right. I like it. My general thinking is that it's a good way to screen neighborhoods. Like if you wanted to pick a whole market, like if you wanted to say, I'm interested in finding a neighborhood in Texas, like it's a good way to sort of like zero down. But when you get to the actual deal level, I think it really kind of falls apart. And so what I've I've recommended to people is if you see a rent to price ratio that's like at 0.75 or even 0.8, that's worth considering. Again, you might not want to pull the trigger on a deal that has uh, a 1%, you know, a rent to price ratio that low, but it doesn't, it's not worth writing off a deal just based off of the 1% rule until you like fully underwrite a deal. Cause I've seen deals as low as 0.75 rent to price ratio deliver really strong, uh, cash flow depending on taxes and insurance and maintenance. There's just so many variables that rent to price ratio doesn't, um, account for. So, um, I, I generally think that it, 
you know, these rules of thumb are helpful, but a lot of times it frightens people because they can't find that 1% rule, but they're not fully even underwriting these deals and don't actually know what the cash on cash return would be at the end of the day. Yeah. And there's so many things that factor in that too. Like how much work do you have to put into it? Like what kind of, you know, if it's turnkey moving ready, then it's probably going to work fairly well. But, you know, you have to factor in your time, your money and your resources in there. And, and that's those are the things that it, that's not going to capture very well. So if you had a, had a rule of thumb to use for buying in 2022, would it be 2% above inflation? Is that like sort of your your North Star right now? For, well, a, a combo because I'm still that walk-in equity guy. Um, a, a, a great equity position is a great equity position. Um but yes, I kind of that's my general rule on cash flow. I want to be at least at two percent above inflation, and that's minimum too. I I, I do shoot for higher, uh, but I'm also prepared to do a lot of construction work and heavy lifting to get me in a better position too. So the more work you get, the more cash flow you get too. Yeah, makes sense. All right, great, James. This has been super helpful. So for everyone listening to this, it seems like according to James, at least in your market, James, there seems to be some buying opportunity right now. And even on market, there's opportunities to find the kind of returns that James as a deal junkie is looking for. So that's encouraging. I'd like to switch now to flipping because you also are doing a ton of how many flips do you do in a year? Oh, too many. I think we, we <laughs> do about, 100, uh, about 150 with our clients a year where we help them design them, find them, source them, put the plan, uh, implement the plan. And then we do about 50 to we were doing about 100, but now we do about 50, but they're bigger projects. So it's about 50 year. Like right now, I think we have like 15 to 20 million dollars in projects going wow. in flips, but they're expensive. There's just more expensive ones. So it's, it's definitely the most, it's the fewest amount of deals I've been doing, but the most amount of capital for sure that we've had out. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, we're trying to work smart and not get to spread out. Well, that, that, that raises a good question. Um, well, raises my next question. I'll just call my own questions. Good. But, uh, <laughs> raises my next question, which is what is a good flip look like to you in this kind of market? So there's three major things that we've done to transition and it's been a pretty rapid transition this we've only take these steps about four to five weeks ago and the more i'm seeing or the less people i'm seeing look at houses the the more we're padding our our margins the first thing that we're we're doing is we're adding contingencies to all of our construction costs and costs in general you know the the cost of fuel the cost uh, the uh, the shortage of materials and labor are real things that are not improving they are getting worse and so we're adding we, any deal that we're looking at, it, we, ha, we, we look at our rehab numbers and we add 10 to 20% on. That's the first thing we do because that's our middle core cost. And how do you, how do you come up with the 10 to 20%? Are you basically taking numbers and comps from your last deal? And then how did you settle on 10 to 20% as you're padding? So what we've, for the last 12 months, we've used 5 to 10%. Uh, because it was a little bit less variance. Plus, we knew there was a little bit more appreciation. The market was doing well, so you're going to be a little bit more aggressive. As it starts to flatline out, and by all means, I don't think the market is going to go into a total, total spin, but I do think there's great opportunities coming. It's as it flattens out, it what there's just more risk. You're not getting that extra upside that we've seen that that's going to pay for those overages. And so we wanted to, add, we wanted to double up our contingencies because also things are just soaring so quickly. So it gives us more padding in our deal. 
we use a construction calculator that we built internally that just really calculates per square foot install rates and allowances all the way through our project. So we know exactly what materials we have in our estimates. We know what people are installing them for. And, and so because we have our core, you know, our, that's the beginning part of our budget. The budget's set up right. Usually we're going to be within a couple percent of that out the gate unless we miss something on our scope work. So by adding that contingency five to, or 10 to 20% on, it just pads in our numbers. How we get the numbers is we interview contractors and our trades, and we just get the install rates directly from them. Uh, and then if we're putting our own allowances on, we're controlling what the materials are. So we just add the 10 to 20% on top of that. Okay, so that that's one rule of thumb that you're following, which is just padding your construction. Pad, and pad, pad, pad pad as much as you can. What about on the acquisition side? Have you changed anything about the kind of deals you're looking for or, you know, the the price point you're looking at? We we definitely are. So there's two th- we made major adjustments on what our our expected returns are. So typically what we've been buying for the last 12 months is in really good neighborhoods of Seattle or the east side. We've been buying at a 10 to 12% cash on cash return not including leverage factored in that. That's just on a cash basis. That typically turns into about a 30 to 35% cash on cash return with leverage, maybe even a little bit higher. But, you know, it, or that's where we were kind of in that 30% range at that point. And then we were getting that kind of appreciation factor in there. We've never a fact, I've never factored appreciation to any one of my deals on a fix and flip. I don't think it's a smart thing to do. You're banking on the market. What I will do is go in with a slimmer walk-in margin. Like I like the area, so I'll buy it if it's a little bit riskier. In sub markets, we were buying them at 13 to 15%, which was going to be about a 35 to 42% cash on cash return. So what we've done is we've added about four to 5% to each one of those areas. So it's a huge jump. I mean, that's, that's, you know, so if we were buying at 12%, now we're buying at 17 because it gives us a much bigger padding. Because as you go through a transitional market, you just don't know where it's going to fall. So you have to pad things more. So we're, we're padding it with 5% on the buy. So we're going from 12 to 17, roughly. And then we're adding 20% to that contingency on the construction budget. So we're just adding in buffers of time. In addition to, we've been able to flip all these homes, what we've tracked, all of our clients' flips, all of our flips, we average out about 6.9 months for a normal fix and flip for the last year. It would take our clients and ourselves on average 6.9 months to buy it, renovate it, sell it, close it. We've added three more months to that now. Wow. Because as we know, that was also in a market where we were only on market for five days and things are closing quick. So what, as we go into longer hold times, we just got to account for it. So instead of running our, our flip calculations at a six-month to seven-month hold, we're running them at a seven to 10-month. And so we're, we're adding more leverage costs, we're adding more construction costs, and we're w- adding a bigger margin, and that's what protects us all the way through. Okay, I have a lot of questions. The first one is based on uh, that additional time you said you added three months, is you, and you said that's because you're expecting days on market to go up, longer sale time. Are you also anticipating longer construction time with the, some of the supply chain issues, or have you been mostly able to mitigate that? Well, how we're mitigating that is we're really staying on top of our budgets and just increasing them dramatically. The more money you have in the budget, the easier you can move. That's actually why I'm doing a lot more luxury flips is because I can bring out trades that show up, they, they're quality workmanship, and they're more professional. 
it allows us to systemize it out a little bit more. So if you have the money in the budget, you can pay people a lot better and they can, they can move a lot faster. But yes, delays are still happening in cities and permits. Uh, things are starting to fall. I think that's going to be an issue for another three to five months, like kind of in that range. I do think as rates get up, the economy is going to slow down. And I, I, I have a feeling, uh, well, also investors are getting out of the market a little bit. They're sitting on the sidelines. There's general contractors and tradesmen that are calling me right now. They haven't called me in a while. Really? That's a big change based on where we've been the last couple of years. Oh, it's been a huge change. And to be honest, I kind of put them on the sideline right now. I said, hey, look, you kind of left working. We're, so we, we kind of ice them out a little bit longer, too. You got to uh, play hard to get now. <laughs> they've been, they've been uh, ignoring you. The, the things I've had to do for these contractors these last 12 months, I feel abused. It, it's <laughs> it's like, like you just have to be so, you know, and it's, it's so I, I feel I have a feeling as things slow down, the trades are going to show back up a little bit more. And so I, I do see that. It, and that's why I'm a buyer right now things are going to improve in certain segments. And as long as I have those big pad in walk in margins, and I think they're going to improve, then that it's, a, it's almost like I can pick it up on my construction cost and timing and put that back in my pocket from the padding. So it's a, instead of getting appreciation, I can pick up extra costs based on efficiencies. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. But in general, so it sounds like, you know, over the last two years, you were targeting an unleveraged cash on cash return of, you said like about 12%. Correct which would net you a levered return of mid thirties. And now in order to protect yourself, be a little bit more conservative, you're looking at 17% unlevered. And you said it was in the mid forties uh, on a levered return. Yeah. It's about four, I would say 38 to 45 on average. Okay. Just out of curiosity. So that's super helpful for anyone listening to that is, is, is that what, that's what you're targeting. Um, what were you getting <laughs> on a leverage return basis over the last two years on some of your flips? Oh man, uh, we on some de- I would some deals we were making a hundred to hundred fifty percent returns. Oof. I mean, there there's that expensive flip we did where we performed the deal at three point three point nine five mil as our exit. We sold it for six and a half. No. Oh, I'm sorry. Four point nine five. Four point seven five to four point nine five. We sold for six and a half, and that was in a five month period. Fifty percent over what you performed at. It was unreal. It, but we were seeing that. Like our clients, we were getting offers, you know, two, three hundred grand over list. You know, Bellevue appreciated fifty, sixty percent. And so we saw these huge swings. And they're unrealistic returns. So that's that's exactly why I asked you this question, because one thing I hear continuously is like the deals aren't as good as what they were or, you know, a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago, whatever it is. But you're still buying deals. So like how mentally do you handle that? Like you were getting maybe 50 percent cash on cash, 100 percent cash on cash. Now you're saying, all right, I'm OK with 38 percent. How do you like rationalize that to yourself? And and why should why are you doing that? And why do you think listeners should consider sort of readjusting their expectations in the way that you're doing that? Uh, the first thing that I would always tell people is if you were getting those kind of returns, that is not normal. And, and like for me, that I, I, I've been doing this for a while and I've seen ups and downs. I've, I've also I've taken pretty major losses and I've done very well. 
So I just know at the end of the day, it's going to balance out. A great year could lead to a flat year, the next one. And if I look at a tier basis, it usually kind of levels itself out. It's what I like to do is I look at my performa and how well did I execute if I would have hit my performa numbers? How well did our construction do? What was our carry cost time? Because that tells me the efficiency of my business. And when I underwrote that deal, the numbers were probably right. The market dictated the return and the upside. And so I have to remember that I am not the, the most important factor in this is economic conditions and market conditions. And no matter what I do, I can't beat the market. The market will always beat me. I have to plan accordingly for the market, but I also have to set my expectations that way. I, at no point did I ever think in my performance that I was going to hit 100% return on any of those deals. You'd be insane to think that, right? Well, like I would never get a deal. Yeah, you can't go in. Yeah, exactly. You would never do anything. But I think that's sort of what happens to some people, at least, is it's sort of paralyzing because you say like you hear these stories about these incredible returns or buying in 2010, you know, and these amazing opportunities. But in some way, at least this is my opinion, like a good deal in 2022 is anything that's better than doing nothing, right? Like at the simplest, like in the simplest way of looking at it, like you have an option of losing money to inflation. You can invest in the stock market if you want, or you can go and find what the market is giving you right now, which what you're saying is maybe an eight to 10% cash and cash return on a buy and hold, or, you know, a 40% levered, uh, cash and cash return on a flip with both to me sound considerably better than doing nothing or any alternative asset classes. Yeah. And that's the thing. People just need to remember what's normal. I have to always remember that, you know, we did very well the last two years, all of our businesses did, but I think a lot, any business that was operating well was doing well. It wasn't just because of what we were doing. It was the, the market and the economy helped us do that. It's but you have to always remember what's normal. And and that's what I was telling my clients for the last two years. You guys, this isn't normal. Just from, like they call me, they're all excited because we just sold their home for a quarter million dollars more than we thought. And I'm like, but remember, that's not normal. That's just, that. what that should be is a reminder to stay as a consistent investor because those people were not making the same amount of money 24 months ago to 36 months ago, but if they would have never started in a market where they were making average returns, they would have never been in this position in the first place. And so the more you go in and out of the market, the less opportunities you're going to have. That's why I'm always consistently buying. Some years it's going to be better. Some years it's going to be worse. And some years we're going to absolutely crush it, but you have to consistently stay in the market. If you're jumping in and out and trying to time everything, you're going to miss all the opportunity. And so you know, just have to be realistic. And then one thing that I like to do too, is I look at myself on a 24 to 36 month basis with all of our numbers. How did our flipping business do over a two year basis? Not just the last six months, the historical numbers are going to really tell you what to forecast correctly, because, you know, that shows you different market conditions and cycles. Yeah. What you said, I think is super important because there is a distinction between timing the market, which is what you're cautioning against doing, which is like jumping in and jumping out and adjusting to the market and trying to make the most of what the market is giving you at this time. And as you said, you know, you are making adjustments to the market and that's wise. And you're being conservative because I agree with you. I think 
I, I don't, no one knows what's going to exactly happen to the housing market on a national basis, but there is a good deal of market risk right now, far more than I think we've seen in 15 years or whatever. Um, and so you're being conservative, which makes sense, but that doesn't mean you're trying to time the market and saying, I'm going to completely stop. And then once there's a crash, I'm going to get back in. You're taking a much more uh, consistent approach, similar to like dollar cost averaging in the stock market, right? Uh, correct. Yeah. Like it's, like right now, we have a certain amount of inventory going. We could take a step back and go, well, if the market's going to be flat, do we want to refi it and keep it? No, we have a certain goal that we know what we're doing with that asset already. It's going to sell for what it's going to sell for, or it's going to rent for what it's going to rent for. It's going to cash flow for what it's going to cash flow. If it doesn't meet my expectations after I'm all done, then I need to sell it off or, or move on to a next asset. But consistency is key. The more irrational I'm pulling it out, the less money I'm going to make. And just adjust and pad your numbers. And then you can also, as long as you have that padding in there, you're mitigating your risk and you're still going to keep yourself at the returns that you want to be. And if you don't get those numbers, then wait or ask more people. You'll find it if you ask enough people. That's great advice, James. Is there anything else that you think our audience should know about what constitutes a good deal in this type of market condition? I mean, the biggest thing is just padding the performa, making sure everything's good. Uh, one thing I like to do too, and if, if people are really worried about risk or when I get worried about risk, I like to buy cheaper deals that can cash flow or flip. Multi exit, when you have multiple exit plans that you can put on a specific house, that's your safest investment. You know, it, and that's going to be tell me if it, when we were doing this in 2009, that's what we were buying because we were, A, we just got our, we, it, it was not a fun 2008. We got smacked good. We had lost most of our liquidity. So we, could, we didn't have, we couldn't just put it into the market. We had to kind of build it back up. And so every deal that we were buying, because we were so shell shocked from that, it was a very risky market where it was falling extremely fast, is we were targeting properties that we knew no matter what, if it didn't flip and we couldn't make our minimum return, we could refi it and rent it out and put it into our portfolio. Some of those houses that we couldn't flip turned into some of the biggest profit makers that we that we we've had over the last 15 years and so just having a multi-purpose multiple multiple exit strategies on your deal that will be another way you can mitigate risk all right thank you james so much this has been enlightening i've had a lot of fun learning a little bit about flipping i i've never flipped a house you know and so i'm i'm very uh interested in learning from you this is really helpful we will be right back after this for our crowdsource segment Welcome back, everyone, to our last segment of the day where we interact with our crowd. James, for today, I would love to hear from you about your clients and some of the people you've been working with, uh, specifically about 1031s. There's a lot of chatter about selling now and it's high and, you know, what do you trade into? So can you tell us a little bit about how you're advising your clients and the people you work with? Yeah, it's kind of confusing right now because we've been a lot of our clients and ourselves, we've been buying properties for the last two years and we're, we're obtaining money at very low rates. And so you buy these properties, you have very low debt on them. They're, you know, typically on commercial or, you know, it's going to be a five to 10 year note anyways. But they got a lot of equity in them. They have good money on them and they're happy with their cash flow, but they have worked through some of the depreciation schedule, like the cost segregation. They've gotten a lot of the benefit out of it. 
They're also worried that their rates might reset in three to four years at a higher rate at that point. In addition to, they might just want to move into a different asset class too. And so as markets transition, the, the question always is, what do I do with my investment money and portfolio before it goes through that transition? Because once you fully go into the transition, it's harder to move things around. And so a lot of the, the question right now is, what is my current portfolio doing? And then also what we're telling everybody to look at is, what is it beating the inflation rate? If it's not, you might want to look at trading some things around. Look at what your true equity position is. And then we can look at how to increase your cash flow to beat that inflation rate or to increase it naturally at that point. Where people get hung up or I even can get hung up on is being so obsessed with their rate. They're like, well, yeah, I have all this equity, but I'm only paying 3%, 3.5% on this rate and they don't want to move where but they might only be making a 6% cash flow position and they have all this equity in the building where what we've done is we've actually audited our whole portfolio. We saw what deals we're looking at that were lower than the rates. And that's what we do for our clients. What, where's your cash flow dragging the most with the most amount of equity and then trading it. And it doesn't matter what the interest rate is down the road. It could be double, but our cash flow position is going to double up at that point. And so Right now, a lot of the, the question is, do I make that trade and what would I trade it for? Now, I, for me, I will only make the trade if I can double up cash flow right now. I do have low rates. I got good stabilized buildings. You're going into a, a kind of a more transitional market in general. But with the amount of equity that we've made, I can double my cash flow on almost every apartment building and house that I own if I 1031 them out correctly. Wow. And so are you seeing clients do that right now? And if so, is this a, is there a limited window in which you can keep doing this before the market shifts even further? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I do think the two to four units, you might have missed your window. Hmm. Rates, at because those rates are six and a half percent, and it dramatically affects the cash flow. And so if you have all this equity in your, in your property, or you, you might have lost some because of rates, when you run that true, true cash flow position, it just doesn't, it, 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 it's going to naturally bring your price down. One recommendation I would have is because rates are high, affordability is in high demand, is if you are going to sell your two to four unit, get one unit vacant because the owner-occupied buyer is still out there because they're looking for a way to cut their expenses, especially with the inflation right now. And so that's the best way for you to trade it. That's great advice. Um, to like make, basically make it appealing to someone who wants to house hack. Yes, and there's so many people out there. I mean, Bigger Pockets has done a really good job teaching people that that's a very effective way to reduce your expenses and grow wealth. Uh, investors only looking at the cash on cash return and how that building is going to perform. If your rate and your money is really high, you're not going to perform that well. But an owner occupied owner, I mean, they can move in and they can go, hey, I can cut my mortgage costs by half by buying this unit instead. And so I would say leave one open. The, the there's still a really good opportunity to trade your five units and above right now because the money's still cheap and it's or it's not cheap but it's you know four and a half it's cheaper than the right alternative you know it's four and a half to five percent and there's also more and I think there's more qualified investors in that realm too you know a lot of times two to four is your mom and pops that are a little bit newer in the industry uh, not always by any means I still own two and four uh, unit buildings, but that, a lot of that's what it trades. The guys that are selling the bigger stuff have gone through more market conditions. And so they'll sell and they'll trade things around a lot better, but you can still trade those out 
right now there's still demand to buy those if it's stabilizing good because people do want to park their money beat inflation the rates are a little bit lower so it, so it's not affecting that equity position as much and then you can trade into more of a value add um and so just you got to be careful about what you're trading and money just see what how liquid can that product be traded around and then make sure you're maxing out there's certain properties that I'm looking at selling right now, but we have that bottom line number that if it goes below that, we're keeping it for another five to 10 years because we've already done all the hard work. It's not worth trading at that point, you know? And so we're listing four of our buildings very shortly. And I know we've listed like six units for our clients recently as well. Because you're, you believe you can double up your cash flow. Yeah. Double up the cash flow, especially for our investors that are more passive. It, their their cash flow has been hit dramatically with inflation. It, you know, their cost of living, things that they're living off of. And so right now, it's the perfect opportunity to realize that equity before it could possibly get reduced and then go get more cash flow to offset your cost. All right, James, you have been dropping some knowledge on us today. Thank you so much. If our listeners want to hear more from you or interact with you, which I'm sure they do, where can they do that? You can do that. Um, so on Instagram, check us out on J Dane Flips. We we talk about all this stuff daily in the field, um, and then also on YouTube at Project Re. Uh, we, we're constantly putting out free education for everybody. So make sure you check us out. All right, and I'm Dave Meyer. You can find me on Instagram at the Data Deli. And just a reminder before we go, if you want to interact with James, myself, Kathy, Jamil, Henry, or any of the on the market crew. You can do that on YouTube. James has been putting out some great videos there. We have a lot of really good YouTube videos that don't make it to the podcast feed. So if you want more information like that, check out YouTube, subscribe there. And if you are listening to this right now, please, if you like this kind of information, leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you all again next week. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media, copywriting by Nate Weintraub, and a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.